0: This is your boy, Uncle Jimmy, a.k.a. your Thrill Sergeant. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. Let people know what's going on. Hey, in case you missed it on Monday's show, Jason kicked off, uh, gave you an update of the coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Take a listen and see what you think.
1: Uh, This weekend... While appearing on Life, Liberty, and Leaven, I butchered a famous quote by Voltaire, the 18th century French philosopher and culture critic. I was using Voltaire to explain 21st century America. The prolific writer said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. I applied the quote to the overreaction to the Capitol riot on January 6th. Corporate media, social media, and many of our lawmakers have absurdly defined the mostly peaceful riot to an insurrection or the most dangerous attack on American democracy since Pearl Harbor. The absurd analogy has justified the atrocity of treating the rioters as domestic terrorists. On Saturday, I gave a speech in West Palm Beach, Florida. I used Voltaire again. I talked about the 1965 Monahan report. It was written by sociologist Daniel Patrick Monahan, the Assistant Secretary of Labor in the Johnson administration. The Monahan report called for investment in the black family in general, and investment in the black in black men in particular. Corporate media framed Monahan and the report as racist. President Johnson pulled his support of Moneyhan's suggested initiatives and implemented his Great Society welfare agenda. It was absurd to frame Monaghan's call for investment in black family as racist. I told my Florida audience that 56 years later, as 75% of black children are born into fatherless homes, we're living with the atrocity of the absurd smearing of Moneyhan. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. This week, Kenosha, Wisconsin, for the second time in 15 months, may be living with the consequences of selling absurdities as truth. Today, a jury heard closing arguments in the Kyle Rittenhouse murder trial. If the, juror, if the jury justifiably acquits Rittenhouse of all serious charges, it is expected that mostly peaceful rioters, looters, and arsonists will peacefully riot, loot, and burn certain areas of Kenosha. Wisconsin Governor Tony Everest has already summoned 500 National Guardsmen to help police Kenosha and surrounding areas. Corporate media have greatly exaggerated Kyle Ritten's house's importance to American culture. He is on trial for murder because of that exaggeration. There is ample video evidence and eyewitness testimony to substantiate that Rittenhouse fired his rifle in self-defense a year ago. The first victim, Joseph Rosenbaum, suffered bipolar disorder. He'd previously served a long stint in prison for molesting a minor. Hours before being shot by Rittenhouse, Rosenbaum had been released from a mental hospital was in a psych ward for an attempted suicide. Rosenbaum had a death wish. That's why he attacked Rittenhouse and tried to wrestle away Rittenhouse's AR-15 rifle. The second victim, Anthony Huber, clubbed Rittenhouse with a skateboard. It's all on video. Huber had a criminal record for domestic assault. The third victim, Gage Grosskreutz admitted walking up to Rittenhouse and pointing a gun at Rittenhouse's head. Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. He should not be on trial for murder. There's no proof that Rittenhouse is a white supremacist as it has been insinuated by our president, Joe Biden, and many people in the media. Rittenhouse is white. All three of his victims were white. Rittenhouse lived in Illinois with his mother. His father lived in Kenosha. It's not difficult to understand how and why he felt compelled to go to Kenosha and attempt to protect businesses and citizens there. You can argue whether a 17 year old should have involved himself in a situation as volatile as Kenosha, but he's not on trial for visiting Kenosha. He's on trial for murder. He's on trial for whether he acted in self-defense. The Rittenhouse trial is an atrocity. The riots that ravaged Kenosha in the aftermath of Jacob Blake being shot by cops were an atrocity. Corporate media framed the shooting of Blake as an unarmed, innocent black man being shot by racist white cops for no reason. Blake was armed with a knife, had wrestled with police, and had an arrest warrant for sexual assault. The media keeps stacking absurdities on top of absurdities, and no one wants to take responsibility for the inevitable atrocities. If the jury follows the law and common sense, Rittenhouse will be acquitted this week and violence will erupt in Wisconsin and perhaps in other parts of America. Much of Voltaire's critique of France was accurate. He died a decade before the French Revolution. The death of America will be the final atrocity caused by the American media's love of absurdity.
0: On Tuesday's show, Jason revisits the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, and he takes a real interesting look at this. He shows how our society is obsessed with racial justice and how things have really changed since the OJ trial of the 90s. I think you're gonna enjoy this one.
1: The slippery slope of televised racial justice started with us, when I'm talking about black people, wrapping our arms around OJ Simpson during a double murder trial 27 years ago. It did not matter to Simpson supporters that the all-time great running back eschewed any semblance of racial loyalty or that Simpson likely committed the murders. Duty called, we answered. Black people clung to the hem of Simpson's garment as if miracles would be derived from the agitation of white people incensed by the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. The slippery slope we boarded in 1994 has hit rock bottom in the Cal Rittenhouse double murder trial. In our never-ending zeal to agitate white people, we have wrapped our arms around Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, two deceased white criminals. Rosenbaum was a convicted pedophile. A decade ago, a grand jury in Arizona indicted him on 11 counts of child molestation involving five boys ranging in age from nine to 11. The charges included anal rape. He copped a plea and was convicted of two of the 11 counts. He suffered bipolar disorder. He attempted suicide. He was released from a mental institution hours before confronting Rittenhouse, threatening to kill Rittenhouse and trying to take Rittenhouse's AR-15 rifle. Huber was a serial domestic abuser. He pled guilty to strangulation, suffocation and false imprisonment. He had been charged with disorderly conduct and use of a dangerous weapon. In the moments before Rittenhouse shot him, Huber clubbed Rittenhouse with a skateboard. Rosenbaum and Huber are the new O.J. Simpson. They are the stars of White is the New Black, a docu-series airing on CNN, MSNBC, and across all social media platforms, illustrating the utter lunacy of a racial justice agenda built around irritating conservative white people. That's the point of racial justice, irritating white people. We, black people, are so confused, so misled, so lacking in strategy, leadership, integrity, and substance that we've reduced black progress to trolling white people. We replaced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with black Twitter. How does convicting Rittenhouse of murder for defending himself against the attack of psychotic criminals advance the cause of black people? I'm gonna wait. Someone answer that question for me. How does convicting Rittenhouse advance the cause of black people? As far as I can tell, it doesn't. It's no different from the acquittal of O.J. Simpson. A handful of black comedians made money cracking O.J. jokes, Johnny Cochran burnished his reputation as America's best trial lawyer, and black people got to giggle amongst themselves about how irate their white coworkers were that O.J. walked. But nothing changed for the betterment of black people. The biggest winners were the cable news channels. OJ launched TV careers and networks. Fox News and MSNBC he launched in the aftermath of the Simpson trial. Greta Van Susteren, Geraldo Rivera, Dan Abrams, David Gregory, Nancy Grace, Harvey Levin, Jeffrey Tubin, Elliot Spitzer, all rode the trial of the century to fame and fortune. OJ benefited the white people who were willing to go on TV and lie about what was happening inside the courtroom. The OJ trial is the only trial I watched start to finish. Cochran and his dream team of attorneys destroyed the prosecution from dire to the closing arguments. The TV experts pretended that prosecutors Marsha Clark and Chris Darden were holding their own. The same thing is playing out in the Rittenhouse trial. Corporate media, they're pretending, the prosecution is proving Rittenhouse is guilty of murder, and black people are foolishly anticipating a moment of frustrating white people's satisfaction. Black people, we're Charlie Brown kicking a football that white people keep pulling at the last second. The frustration of white people does not improve the lives of black people. If we want to be taken seriously, we need a far more tangible goal than frustrating white people. This current goal is embarrassing and counterproductive. It makes black people look weak, illogical and immoral. The current goal forces us to turn OJ Simpson, George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Joseph Rosenbaum, and Anthony Huber into martyrs and heroes. Rachel Maddow, AKA Joy Reid, shouted Rosenbaum's name on TV the other night like she was referring to Medgar Evers. A Black Lives Matter clown from Portland, Oregon, Greg McKelvey, tweeted yesterday that employers should give their black employees a day or two off from work after the Rittenhouse verdict, regardless of the verdict. McKelvey says it's going to be hard for us to work and it isn't fair for our employers to expect us to. The deaths of a white pedophile and a white domestic abuser have shaken black people to the point Did we need time off work to recover? McKelvey is insane. He suffers racial dysphoria. He's half black and half white, born to a black dad and a white mom. He's married to a white woman. His children look white, look more white than Mike Pence in The Dead of Winter. McKelvey is the worst kind of half white liberal. He absolutely loves white fruit but his blue check public persona is based on pretending to hate the white tree that produced it. McKelvey just another power obsessed liberal using racial justice to seize power and fame. It's all a consequence of the slippery slope. Yesterday, during closing arguments, Assistant District Attorney Thomas Binger, put an exclamation point on the absurdity of the racial justice being sought in the Rittenhouse trial. Binger rationalized the violent and bizarre behavior of Rosenbaum on the night of the shooting, including excusing Rosenbaum's
2: use of the N-word. He just happens to stumble into it. So what does he do that night? Oh, let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bearcats and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N
1: word. Are you kidding me? A pedophile? who dropped the N-word, is the newest racial justice martyr.
0: Never thought I'd miss the days when O.J. Simpson was a hero. And on Wednesday, <laughs> Jason out hit his coverage. He pulled one out of left field on us. He had the Russian Justin Timberlake on, the Christian Ray Charles. In other words, his name is Christian Ray Flores, and he's here to talk about communism, his turn to religion. And he gives a couple of interesting little takes on music. You're gonna like this one. I'll say this, you were born in
2: Moscow, Russia. You tell the story from there. So I was born in Moscow, Russia. My dad is Chilean, my mom is Russian. They were both communists. And they, they met a student, my dad was an engineering student, my mom was um, uh, studying uh, as to be a, a, a teacher of, of the French language, uh, in the, a linguist essentially. And um, they got married, I was born, and we immediately left uh, for Chile, I was six months old or something like that. At the time, literally around that time, the first democratically elected socialist president, I think in the world, was, was about to be elected in Chile, his name was Salvador Allende. He was very, very popular, and uh, what happened afterwards is that he, Um, He got elected and there was a military coup to overthrow him. So we were in the middle of that military coup because my dad was a communist. He was a a supporter, obviously, of of that president. So my dad spent some, you know, a few months in a concentration camp. There was thousands of people arrested, disappeared, tortured, killed. You know, it was was a mess. So one of my first... Childhood memories was being in a refugee camp. After they w- he was released, there was uh, we were the lucky ones, right? If if you think about the Kabul airport scenes that we just saw recently, we were the ones who were. Who were on the inside of the airport, at least, because we could get out, right? So we were in a UN protected by the UN refugee camp for a few months before we got asylum in Germany. So that was sort of the beginning of my childhood, if you can imagine. Uh, It's actually my first childhood memories were from that, that place. I was like five years old we uh, moved to germany for a while back to the soviet union my mom was sort of shell-shocked she wanted to go back home and then we ended up in in africa in mozambique now mozambique was a also this was the era when a lot of the african countries got their independence so essentially most of them leaned either towards uh, the West or or the socialist bloc so Mozambique happened to be a Marxist run country so I was there for seven years I saw the whole thing develop. my you know my parents were key people in reestablishing industries and things like that uh, along with a bunch of other expat specialists because they just didn't have enough professionals there at the time so I loved that country but it went through a lot I'll tell you that so I spent seven y- years in Mozambique my, and after my parents divorced my mom wanted to go back to the Soviet Union, so I ended up in the Soviet Union with my mom and my sister in a, you know, one-bedroom ha- apartment, little apartment in Moscow. Uh, and it was just such culture shock. It's like whiplash, right, from from environments and how you live there. So I finished school in, in, in Russia. I got a master's degree in economics. And the funny thing about that is that I studied... Karl Marx as an economist. And halfway through, sort of maybe two-thirds through into my studies, the professors were st- started teaching us market economics free markets uh, economics you know all, all of the theorists all of the all of the leaders in 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 that in that space and I graduated with a master's degree in economics the very year where the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991 so that's sort of the quick backstory and then I went I was sort of musically inclined from my childhood so I did that in parallel I was a dancer I was a break dancer I sang I was the soloist everywhere so I was creative, st- a creative guy studying economics, which weird mix, but it's actually served me really well in my career because I was able to become not only a, a, a big star in Russia, but I produced other bands. And, you know, we were commercially very successful, not just artistically.
1: And so you grow up with these two communist parents. What influence did they have on your worldview Uh, And and how did you transition? Obviously, studying economics probably played a role in your transition, but you were probably raised to be a communist, a
2: Marxist, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was I was very I grew up in a very ideologically charged family. And on top of that, it's not just ideas. Right. For us, this was. A fight against oppression because you know my parents were imprisoned for their ideas. They, they weren't even politicians. You know they're not terrorists. They're not politicians, but they were imprisoned. Many of the of their friends were tortured and killed and imprisoned. So went through the same ordeal. So it, it, the contrast of the story was m- very much not theoretical, right? It, it was experiential. It was, wow, there's a lot of evil out there. So it was a very politically charged. Um, family, we're very idealistic. So there's some good things in that. But if you, to, to to answer your question about what helped me transition, and what helped me transition was reality. It was exper- experiencing the fruit of that ideology translated into society, how people interact with each other, how culture develops, how economics develop, um, and how much misery it brought how much mediocrity, it brought how much human uh, the worst in in the human condition was sort of bubbling up because of you know of this ideology. So experientially, I was not a fan. I saw how much misery it, it brought. Now, once you grow up, you start reading things like the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, and you realize that much of the socialist dream was built on slave labor and oppression, uh, and and fear. Um, you you go to the store and you see. Not a lot of food, right? So you're not hungry, but it's scarcity, and it's terrible. And it doesn't produce flourishing. So between experientially knowing that, in literally three different countries, right? Because Chile was experimenting with that, with that socialist president. That didn't last long. And actually, the real income of, of the population went down considerably once he took over. Then he was overthrown, and things changed. In, in Africa, same thing. There was a Marxist uh, country, and there was a lot of misery there. And in the Soviet Union, you lived in this. Sort of grayscale world of mediocrity. You know, they had the state had a lot of accomplishments, like sending people to the moon and they build machines. But the the average human being was not flourishing there. So between that and then studying the theory behind those things, uh, that really definitely solidified my my switch to being not only uh, uh, not liking communism, but being against communism because I see a lot of it has just evil in it. And I can unpack that
1: later if you'd like. As a young person, are you debating with your parents? Or when you get into your 20s and 30s, are you debating with your parents? Or or did your, and maybe your parents are still alive, did they remain communists? Did, Did you guys have spirited debates about communism?
2: We did, we did somewhat. Well, my dad was not with us because my parents got divorced, um, unfortunately. But we did debate it uh, some, and uh, I still, I still go back and forth with with my dad. I think he's sort of left left leaning in in the sense of he. I don't think he's not a communist per se. He's more of a socialist now. Uh, but you know, I, you know, I just recently said, hey, can you please do me a favor, Dad? Can you please le- read? Um, a gulag archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. if you really want to form your ideas around around this at least check out the fruit of it I mean it's a he's a Nobel Prize winner this is a classic if you want to understand the difference between systems uh, so he's I think he's he's checking into that right <laughs> so uh, so we but, but we're we have very friendly debates especially with my dad we we love discussing stuff like that with my dad your mom my mom Not so you know much. it was it was easier with my mom because she lived there he was i think my dad was more of an idealist and he lived in the soviet union a little bit but he doesn't he was not immersed in it for decades right he studied there so a lot of it is youth memories married to sort of ideas that make sense because let's face it marxism socialism is a very appealing set of ideas right it's the solution that messes it up so with my mom because she lived there for longer and she saw some of the Terrible things that happened, and also she became a Christian. Uh, I became a Christian in '95, and that helped me see that. I mean, the communists—they, they, they, it's in the foundational philosophy that uh, religion, what they call, is opium for the opium for the people to control the masses. So they re- forcibly removed faith, and more importantly, not just the religious aspects of faith, but they forcibly removed. Um, the idea of God I mean and what, By forcefully I mean Thousands and thousands Of priests Executed imprisoned, Sent to gulags Tens of thousands Of churches Demolished You know Blown up um, It is forcible Right So it was just It was literally try, They were trying to exterminate This very dimension Of the human being Which tells us That we are Created in the image of God We're more than just you know, a biological being, we're a spiritual being. Now, if you remove that you're a spiritual being from your worldview, that shapes you in ways that are, that end up uh, producing some of the fruit that we see in, in, in Marxist uh, uh, countries.
0: On Thursday's show, Michigan State's Mel Tucker is in line to get a $95 million contract extension. And I could be wrong, but Jason is not very happy about this. Take a listen. Uh, We will soon learn
1: whether Michigan State coach Mel Tucker suffers from premature veneration. It's a projectile dysfunction that afflicts many football coaches. It's when projections of greatness far exceed actual accomplishments and a school or franchise vastly overpays a promising head coach. The coach prematurely goes limp, leaving the team, fans, and decision makers totally unsatisfied. The highest profile example of premature veneration happened at Notre Dame 16 years ago. After a 5-2 start and reaching number nine in the polls, the Fighting Irish made Charlie Weiss the highest paid coach in college football, lavishing the former Bill Belichick assistant with a 10-year, $40 million year contract, $40 million contract, not a year, After his hot after his hot start, Weiss lost 25 of his next 55 games at Notre Dame. Notre Dame fired Weiss halfway through his groundbreaking 10-year contract. So here we are again. The Detroit Free Press reported yesterday that Michigan State plans to extend the contract of its second-year head coach to the tune of 10 years and $95 million. At an average salary of 9.5 million, Tucker would be the third highest paid coach in college football, trailing only Alabama's Nick Saban and Clemson's Dabo Sweeney. Sweeney, Saban, would earn approximately 200,000 more than Tucker, and Dabo would earn about 8,000 more than Tucker. Saban has won seven national championships. Dabo has won two. In three years, as a head coach, including one season in Colorado, Tucker has one winning season and a career record of 16 and 13. This extension smells like premature veneration. Tucker's gone from dating Instagram models to hopping in bed with Mia Khalifa, the adult film star. The record contract might be far more than Tucker can handle. Let me say it in a different way by quoting the street philosopher and adult rap star Christopher Wallace, AKA Notorious B.I.G. More money, more problems. Most people have more trouble handling success than failure. There are a million books written about overcoming adversity and failure. Success makes you an author, which is short for authority. Success means you have all the answers. Success allows you to write your own rules. Most people can't handle that. Mel Tucker no longer has to answer to a boss, the school's athletics director, or school president. His critics are now irrelevant. It's game over. Tucker hit the lottery. According to the National Endowment for Financial Education, about 70% of lottery winners go broke in a few short years. I get why Michigan State is paying Tucker. LSU and USC were allegedly interested in hiring Tucker. Tucker has NFL coaching experience. An NFL franchise would likely offer Tucker a job this offseason. The competition to employ Tucker was going to be intense this offseason. Plus, two Michigan State boosters are financing Tucker's new contract, Matt Ishbia and Steve St. Andre. Two Detroit area businessmen are paying for Tucker's whopping contract. Isbia was a walk-on basketball player on Michigan State's 1999 National Championship team. Isbia is the president, chairman, and CEO of the largest wholesale mortgage lending company in America. He's worth nearly $7 billion. He previously gave $32 million to the Michigan State Athletics Department. He's a white male billionaire who loves his alma mater, loves sports, and understands the value of good publicity. Investing in Mel Tucker is cancel culture insurance. Ishbia wed himself to a high profile black football coach. Mel Tucker's new last name is Ishbia. I don't write any of that to denigrate the booster or Mel Tucker. I'm writing it to explain another one of the factors that led Tucker to being paid like he's Saban or Dabo? It's brilliant marketing by Ishbia and St. Andre. But will all the money harm Tucker's evolution as a coach? Would Tucker's long-term success be better served by a contract that pays him seven million a year for five years? Will the contract and the headline, sparked by the contract, create unreasonable expectations around Tucker? Tucker's deal will change the market for college coaches, Saban and Sweeney, and others will get raises because of the deal handed to Tucker. But the headlines about Tucker's deal will not go away. His name will be attached to Saban and Sweeney moving forward. This Saturday, when Michigan State faces Ohio State, you will hear plenty of discussion of Tucker's contract. If the seventh-ranked Spartans lose to the fourth-ranked Buckeyes, you will hear that Tucker earns more money than Ohio State's head coach, Ryan Day. Sometimes, less really is more. A little less money would have protected Tucker's growth. I don't blame Tucker for taking the contract. I blame the overzealous Boosters and Tucker's agent, Jimmy Sexton. I'm not vilifying Sexton, Ishbia, or St. Andre. They're all well-intentioned. However, they're doing what serves them. Jimmy Sexton is arguably the most powerful man in college football. Tucker getting paid as much as Saban and Sweeney serves Sexton. He represents nearly every college coach who matters. Changing the market serves Sexton. Over the next decade, Sexton will make far more money off the new market than Tucker will. Sexton can't lose, Tucker can. The whole sports world might see him prematurely venerate on national TV. He could end up with a big pile of money and Charlie Weiss's reputation. Tucker was already making $5 million a year. He was always going to end up with a big pile of money.
0: This new contract puts his reputation at risk. Then on Friday's show, we had a little audible thrown in on us. We got the verdict on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And believe me, you don't want to miss what Jason has to say about this. Tune in. Men and our natural instincts
1: to be protectors. And we've heard a lot of discussion over the past couple of weeks about, uh, well, I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have, why did he go over there? He should have stayed home. And a lot of second guessing of Kyle Rittenhouse and his behavior. And, and I just want you to sit back and ask yourself if your community, where your father lives, where you hold a job, where your grandparents live, was being looted and burned. And there, there's all kinds of violent activities, again, that the corporate media has not shown you in terms of what was really going on in Kenosha in the aftermath of the Jacob Blake shooting. There's video of horrendous attacks on citizens there in Kenosha. Tucker Carlson showed a video, a dozen people stomping and beating uh, a white business owner that was trying to protect his business. And he was surrounded by a swarm of mostly peaceful protesters who kicked and stomped this man into the ground. It looked a lot like Reginald Denny getting pulled out of his truck uh, after the Rodney King verdict. But the, the media won't put that in your face and give you an accurate picture of what was going on. And so this young boy The night before, not the night of the shooting, but the night before, went to Kenosha. It's my understanding. His mother didn't drive him there, the the lies, and he crossed the state line with a gun. It's not true. The gun was already over in Kenosha, but he, he signed up and wanted to protect his community and provide medical help to people who were being brutalized. It's all on tape. and we want to sit around and, and second-guess Kyle Rittenhouse. What's he doing there? He should have stayed at home, blah, blah. And, and, and some of that I can almost understand if it were consistent. If we're going to second-guess Kyle Rittenhouse's behavior, why was he there? Don't get upset when people say, Why did George Floyd resist arrest for 30 straight minutes? Why did George Floyd try to pass off uh, counterfeit bills? Why did George Floyd fill himself up with fentanyl? Again, because if you're going to criticize and second guess Kyle Rittenhouse, you need to be open to people second guessing and criticizing your favorite victim or martyr. And so, again, there are people, just like people will say, I could never see myself doing what uh, Kyle Rittenhouse did. There's a lot of people. (laughs) I could never see myself doing what George Floyd did. I'd never be in that position. I'd never be hyped up on fentanyl. I'd never be passing off counterfeit $20 bills, and I certainly wouldn't be arguing with the police for 20 or 30 minutes and resisting arrest and talking about I'm claustrophobic and I can't get in the backseat of the car and bo- I wouldn't have done any of that and I've been pulled over by police many times. I wouldn't have done any of that. And so there's my problem with many people is there's no consistency of logic It's just, hey, this is what's trending over Twitter, this is what they're saying over Instagram, this is what I'm supposed to believe because of my skin color, and I wanna fit in, and I don't wanna be a sellout, or I don't wanna be accused of being racist. I, I, I just want, personally, to protect this country protect the freedoms that we have in this country. Those freedoms have served me and my family well, and we were not born with a silver spoon in our mouth. And so Cal Rittenhouse's instincts to protect his community. And that was his community because again, where he lived in Illinois was a 20 minute drive from Kenosha. His mom lived in Illinois. His dad lived in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's his community. His instincts to protect himself and his community no different than my father's. My father carried a thirty-eight revolver every day that I knew him because his instincts was to protect himself, his business, his property. My father pulled that gun several times protecting his business and himself. He didn't pull it on the police. He pulled it on mostly peaceful criminals. So I I just, to me, this is a good day for men with balls. If you don't have any, it's probably a bad day. If you want to see the rise of the matriarchy, it's probably a bad day for you. If you are someone who hears someone banging at the door in the middle of the night, and you think it's criminals trying to break in and rob you, if you're the type of person who would get out of bed and bring your woman with you to go see who's at the door. It's probably a bad day because you ain't got balls. You're not really a man. You're a coward who doesn't want the responsibility of being a man. You want to run to the media. (laughs) What a tragedy. Brianna was shot Because I wasn't man enough to tell her, baby, you stay back here. I'm going to go see who's at the door. See, when your stupidity of firing that first shot with your woman standing in the room with you, your stupidity cost her her life and escalated a situation. If you're one of those type men, it's a bad day for you. You don't think logically, you think emotionally. You're a coward.
0: Bad day. Good day for me though. Once again, my name is Uncle Jimmy. I want you to go to YouTube.com slash Jason Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. We need you to join the fearless army. We need you to get the new fearless gear. And we need to show that we care about what's happening in our country here in America. And we do intend to exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white and the blue. Thank you!